I'm Catherine. Hi, I'm Alexei. And this is Cosmos in the Cosmos. Okay, so for this episode, I have my third guest of the podcast. This is my friend Alexei. Sup? Hi, my name is Alexei. I am a graduate student in biology. I'm not really usually the biggest fan of science fiction. I'll be honest. I'm much more of a fantasy guy. So when like Catherine invited me on the podcast, I was like, oh, shit, I don't know. I'm not like, don't do much with science fiction. And especially when she asked me my favorite science fiction book, I don't have one. I do like two major science fiction things though. I really like Altered Carbon, the TV show. <laughs> And I also really, really like Mass Effect. It's so good. I like Mass Effect, but I have to admit, I still haven't finished it. You still haven't finished it? Yeah, well, so the way that I play video games is I just like do like every single quest that appears in front of me. And there's a bunch of side quests in Mass Effect that aren't as good as the main storyline. And I got distracted by them and then I never finished it. Yeah, yeah. You just, you can only do so many side quests. You need to just like power through the main storyline, especially the first game. Yeah, also, I got like 70% into it, and then one of my other friends was like, what about God of War? And I was like, ooh. Mm. And then that kind of stole my thing. I don't know. Mass Effect, it's so fucking good. Well, I did really like it, and that, I mean, I really like the races in Mass Effect. What are the giant lizard people called? The giant lizard people? Like, who, Rex? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the... Krogans? Uh, yeah, the Krogans. The Krogans. Yeah, Krogans are so cool, because they're giant lizards that they rebelled against the galactic coalition that humans are part of and so one of the other member races launched genetic weapons on them and now most of them are infertile which is like the world building of mass effect gets me so much because like the alien species just feel so different and unique and super cool and interesting like I, I didn't know whether I would like Mass Effect after like the first mission, mm-hmm. but the second I went to the Citadel and I started talking with the alien races, especially, I don't know what they're called, but it's the ones that like are on four legs. I actually have a sticker of them on my laptop and they're like, they talk in a monotone voice. Love them. That, that was my favorite part of the entire video. I'll, I'll, find, I'll find their name or Alexa can search it while I'm talking. But the best thing about them is they talk like this no matter what. Elcor. Elcor, yeah, and they talk really slowly, and because they know that other races can't tell, they, like, always say their emotions. One of the best scenes in all of Mass Effect is the third game in which there's an ad for a Shakespeare done by Elcors, and it goes, expository statement, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Like, if, you know what, screw Stranger in a Strange Land... Go play Mass Effect. I mean, honestly, I would rate Mass Effect over probably any book I've read for this podcast and done an episode on yet. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very good books. But you'll soon do Dune, so. Yes. Dune is better than Mass Effect. I'm very excited for that. My friend Simon will be on for it. Mm, Simon. He's a great guy. <laughs> Simon is pretty great. All of my friends know each other, so they're all like in the in the universe of the cosmos and the cosmos <laughs> podcast. The extended universe. <laughs> yeah. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so first off, for this episode, we actually ended up doing three cocktails. 
partially because I was dumb. So this book, Stranger in Strange Land, is about a guy from Mars. So originally, I looked up a cocktail called A Martian Sunrise, and I decided to do that, and then I had dinner with one of my friends, Kane. And Kane, who is a cocktail expert, if you've been listening to this, if you heard me talk about my old roommate, who I was always stealing his alcohol, that was Kane. And Kane suggested, very wisely, that I do the actual cocktail in the book, Stranger in Strangeland, that one of the characters, Jubal Harshaw, likes to drink. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. And I made sure I had the ingredients for that. And then I totally forgot. And then today I looked it up and had written down that I was going to do a Martian Sunrise. So I got all the ingredients for Martian Sunrise. And I was like, oh yeah, also the Jubal Harshaw drink. Well, we didn't get any beetles, unfortunately. Yeah, technically it has a beetle in it. We did not have it with a beetle in it. But so what we decided for this one is... Since what I'm doing for the 60s is if the listener's drink wins, they get to choose another sci-fi book from the 60s to make me read. If my drink wins, nothing happens as usual. And if Alexei's drink wins, the same thing happens. But if Jubal Harsho's drink wins, then we have to do another Robert Heinlein book. (laughs) Please, God, don't win. (laughs) Yeah, Robert Heinlein is not my favorite, but... He, he does love Jubal Harshaw, so it would only be fair. That's true, yeah. But yeah, do you want to tell the listeners what your drink was? Sure. So I was going to go for Sex on a Beach, but that felt a little bit too on the nose. So instead, my drink is the Little Green Man from Mars. What it is, is it's a half a shot of Jägermeister, half a shot of peppermint liqueur with a green maraschino cherry inside. Pretty good. I actually really liked it. I'm not a big fan of Jägermeister at all. Yeah, I was surprised because I've never actually had Jägermeister before, but I've heard bad things about it in the past. Yeah, they're they're right. Jägermeister sucks. But like the like the herbal amount of like Jägermeister mixed very well with peppermints, it gave almost kind of like a like a wintry like late winter vibe. Yeah, it felt like something that like I would bring and have like at like Christmas. Yeah, it, if you're looking to get really drunk at Christmas time, you know, and you have Jägermeister in the fridge, I'd give it a shot. Honest to God. Yeah, it might be the drink for you. But technically, we did, like, the little red man from Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to get green maraschinos this time of year. (laughs) Yeah, I just got red ones. I'm boring. But then my two drinks, well, Jubal Harsha's drink and my drink. So I did the Martian Sunrise, which technically is supposed to just have frozen raspberries and blackberries in it. But I got a mix that also has strawberries and blueberries in it. And then... Yep, I'm very fancy. It was actually, there wasn't any bag of just frozen blackberries at the grocery store. So Hmm. there was frozen raspberries, but not a frozen blackberry bag. So I was like, why don't I just get the mix? And then it's also tequila and orange juice. And I chose that because obviously this book's about Mars. And then the other one we did, which is the cocktail that Jubal Harshaw drinks in the book. It's just a shot of gin vodka tonic and salt and technically you're supposed to put a beetle on top but like there's recipes online for like which beetles you can ha- add and it's like you know stranger in the strange land really worth it yeah i'm not that dedicated to this podcast yeah <laughs> sorry folks yeah you know have i ever get to the point where i'm like going to like actual podcasting things then maybe but even then i don't know i don't know if you could convince me to eat a beetle you know, I'd do it. I'd do it. But only for 
somebody have to buy the beetle for me, you know? I'm not going to spend my hard-earned money on a beetle to eat it, you know? Yeah, I don't know about that. But so the shot uh, was surprisingly good. The Jibble Harshaw one was fine. Yeah, it, it wasn't bad. Like, I don't like shots, but it just kind of tasted like a more alcoholic gin and tonic. Which, Alexa and I both like gin and tonics. So. Yeah, and like in a shot form, it works very well. And then I also, I mean, we said this, but I liked yours. Yeah, I really liked mine. I was, I'm very surprised. <laughs> I did not think mine was going to be good at all. Yeah, I was telling Alexei before this that when he suggested his, I was not, I was not convinced. Yeah, I wasn't convinced either. I'm, I'm legitimately surprised how good it actually was. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not actually sure I like mine that much. I was about to say the same thing. It just, it feels like water. Yeah. Like it tastes too much like water to me. But it has stuff in it. It's just nothing was strong enough. I don't know. I feel like maybe with more tequila or like less orange juice or something. I mean, it's good, but it's just... I mean, yeah, but I would give my vote to Alexis as it stands. I, I hate to say it, but I'd also vote for mine, which I am shocked. Yeah, we were talking about this as we were eating dinner, and we did not think Alexis was going to win. I didn't think mine was going to win. Like, seriously, I don't like Jägermeister, but really, it's, it's actually pretty good. Well, this is why you choose drinks just for the aesthetic for the show. <laughs> exactly. Because they might turn out being good. Little Green Man from Mars? Yeah, all right. So, Alexei's going to think about it and let me know at some point in the future which book from the 60s he wants to do. Oh, shit. The question is, do I do a good one that I actually want to read, or do I do a bad one that nobody wants to listen to? Well, the thing is, is the way those episodes work is you can read it if you want to, but you don't have to. Oh, you can just make me read it and tell you about it. Ooh, all right. So, it really depends how sadistic you're feeling. Shit. Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheeps came out in the 1960s, and that's a cool idea. But it's not a painful idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a major fan of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but I don't think it's as bad as Man in the High Castle. So, <laughs> which I'm sorry, I know that's a spoiler for that episode. So, a spoiler for the Man in the High Castle episode. I invited my friend Sammy on because he is the most enthusiastic person I know, and I thought that maybe he could balance out my lack of enthusiasm for Man in the High Castle. I've never read Man in the High Castle, but I've seen some of the Amazon show. What? <laughs> that's not how history works. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. That will be... Maybe... I'm trying to think about it. I think it will be the episode after this. Damn. So, Well, yeah. go watch that or listen to that. Yeah, tune in in three weeks to see, see Sammy and I talk about it. But, yeah, so... Do you want to talk about the plot? Sure. So, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. So, the plot is, 20 years after initial human colonization of Mars goes awry, another mission to Mars finds a human born on Mars and raised by Martians. So, when he's taken home, he's hidden away by the government, and he has to be broken out by his nurse, Jill, who accompanies him on his adventures of learning what it means to be human on the way, he teaches people about life and love. I'm doing heavy air quotes there. <laughs> There's a lot of love in this book. A lot of love. In yeah. I also will say at this point, this episode will probably involve a lot of talking about sex. So, warning. 
like I I cannot emphasize that like I tried talking about this like book to one of my colleagues and they just got super uncomfortable right away. <laughs> so if you like it, there's no like there's no like problematic sex thing. Well, okay, there's a few problematic sex things, but it's nothing like too too bad. But like if sex like gross you out or anything, I just skip this episode. Yeah. In a few episodes, I'll be talking about The Wanderer, and there's scenes in The Wanderer that, like, really, really made me uncomfortable. Nothing in this made me quite as uncomfortable as that. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of sex in this episode. A lot of sex. And if you're wondering, how the hell does this plot that I just described have to do with sex, you're on the right track. (laughs) Yeah, you'll find out. But, okay, do you want to talk about the characters, Alexei? Sure. So, the man from Mars, also known as Valentine Michael Smith, he's uh, a man who was born to the first group of humans that were put on Mars, and he was raised by the Martians before being brought back to Earth when he was 20 years old. Throughout most of the story, he's known as Mike. Mm -hmm. A few people call him Valentine, but almost everybody just calls him Mike. So, we'll just be calling him Mike from now on. Yeah. Then there's Jillian Jill Boardman, who is Mike's nurse and one of his closest confidants. She's the female character for this book. There's more female characters, but she's the main one. <laughs> yeah, she's the closest to having an independent personality. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about her later. <laughs> There's Ben Caxton, who is an early love interest for Jill, but he's a fast-talking reporter who's determined to fight the man and meet the man from Mars and just <laughs> uncover the truth. He's an interesting guy. He is a bit of the caricature of a reporter, but you know, yeah. most of Robert Highland characters are caricatures. So Then there's Jubal Harshaw, who is this super popular writer, lawyer, doctor who fights nonstop against the man. God, Jubal Harshaw. What a man. He's very important for this story. He's like... Anytime anything goes wrong in this book, you don't need to worry because you know how dire the situation is. Jubal Harshaw will save the day. Exactly. Under Jubal Harshaw, he has three secretaries. Their names are Anne, Miriam, and Dorcas. You do not need to know the difference between them. One of them is a star wit- or a, a professional witness. Which one? Seriously, like Anne, Ma- Miriam, or Doric- Dorcas. Which I, one's the professional witness? I think it's Anne. It is Anne. It is Anne. But... but- I, the thing is, I remembered all the characters' names from this book, except for those three. If Alexei had not said them, I would have forgotten them, because that's how important they are. Well, I'm glad you said that, because when we were talking about characters earlier, you said to mention Jubal Harshaw's handyman, Duke. Well, it turns out he has two handymen, Duke and Larry, who are two separate characters. I don't remember Larry at all. Yeah, I, <laughs> I had to go back into the book to figure out who the hell Larry was. <laughs> But they're just handymen for Jubal. Then there is Joseph Douglas, who's the Secretary General of the Federation of Free States. So basically, he's just the president of the world. Just president of the world. Then there's his wife, Alice Douglas, who's the one that's actually running the world. But she places a lot of her decisions in the hands of her astronomer, Beck Vassant. (sighs) Beck Vassant is an astronomer, obviously. And she's a good friend of Jubal Harshaw. And the final character, which is pretty important, is Patty Pywanski? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. It's Polish. Yeah. Like, she's a tattooed lady who works at the circus, uh, and she's a snake charmer. And she, like, works with Jill and Mike for a while. Though, emphasis on the tattoos. She's emphasis. completely covered in tattoos, and anytime 
anyone gets naked, she's always like, look at my tattoos. But they're telling the story of her life. It's important for the plot that she shows her tits, Catherine. Yes, exactly. But anyways, so at this point, I'm going to tell the history of the book and spoilers are going to start. So if anything we've said has been of interest to you, if you want to find out anything about it before we tell you, then go read it and then come back to this point. I will be very clear. This book, I wouldn't necessarily not recommend it, but just know it's weird. So if you're ready for a second ass twist, second act twist, which will turn your socks upside down, then read this book because Jesus Christ. It is certainly the most interesting Robert Heinlein book I've ever read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I've read two other ones for this podcast and, you know, I'll have a fourth one soon. But I like Double Star. I think there are some interesting points in it. I didn't like Starship Troopers, but neither of them, like Double Star and Starship Troopers, you kind of know where they're going. Mm -hmm. This, you do not know where it's going. You, you do not know where it's going. Like, I was reading the book, and I'm like, okay, so I understand where this is going, and I'm like, going along, and then you get to what, page 310 or something, and then it's just, it flicks on like a light switch, and the entire rest of the book is the weirdest shit that you will ever read. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, because a lot of books from this period were written in sections, mm -hmm. so I thought that it must have been published in like two sections when I read it, but it wasn't. Really? Yeah, it was published as one thing. It just was very strange one thing. Well, yeah, it, it basically is just one, it's two books, really. Yeah, it almost could be. Like, it could literally like 300 pages in like the first plot thing is all resolved mm -hmm. if the book had ended there i would have been like okay this is a book i can talk about it i don't feel anything is missing and i never would have known it would, i will say though if it ended there it would not be nearly as interesting no i would not be giving it as good of a rating <laughs> i would it have won a hugo maybe <laughs> but it, it would have missed all the beautiful parts but okay so for history of this book so the first thing to be noted is Stranger in a Strange Land that is from the Bible. It's from Exodus because he wanted to give it a biblical name because it's about um, Moses's reflections on fleeing Egypt. And he says in the Bible, for so said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And he wanted to emphasize that about Mike. But this is the third book that Heinlein has won a Hugo with. And um, the fourth one will be coming up soon. That's Moon and a Harsh Mistress. That I'll be doing with Paul, so he'll be my first repeat guest. So that will be exciting. But I'm not really sure I liked this book. But it was very, it was very interesting. <laughs> you can't say that you hated it. No. Because would I have read this if I wasn't forced to? I mean, not forced to. Would I have read this if I wasn't going to be on the podcast talking about it? Yeah, fun fact, I actually hold all of my guests at gunpoint until they finish the books. Um, please send help. <laughs> this is not part of the podcast. I desperately need help right now. No. But like, would I have read this if I wasn't doing a podcast on it? Probably not. But I'm not the biggest reader. I'm not the biggest person in science fiction. But I mean, this book isn't like that big on the science fiction. Well, it's much more religious themes than yeah, science fiction. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have read this book if it wasn't on the podcast. But I'm kind of glad I did because it was very interesting. It was an interesting experience. I love I love talking to people about it. Just being like, have you heard about Stranger in a Strange Land? And they're like, no. It's like, what's it about? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Do we have a story for you? But yeah, so this book was 
was, surprise, surprise, very controversial when it first came out. And it was banned from a lot of school lists because this book is very pro-free love, let's say. <laughs> yes, say the least. And a lot of schools were very scandalized. Because you got to remember, this came out in 1962. You know, there wasn't a lot of uh, free love in 1962. Even this book came out nowadays, it would be lampoon completely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's like nowadays, it's like... I was um, helping one of my friends edit their Hinge account the other day, which is a dating app. And um, on there, you can choose whether you're monogamous or not. So it's like we've reached a point in our society where it's like some people feel like they can come out as poly. Mm -hmm. Definitely not something that people were saying in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. But so beyond that... This book, even though it's controversial, it was actually the very first sci-fi novel to be on the New York bestsellers list. And it got like a weirdly large cult following. Like the word grok, like I grok it, like started to like make its way into like um, common usage. Oh, absolutely. There's two groups that were really important for it. The first one is Charles Manson. Charles uh... Manson actually used the word grok. He used water sharing ceremonies in his um, like family i will say if you want to learn more about charles manson go check out the um the podcast morbid really good yeah it's actually really excellent i've only listened to like one episode because that sort of thing slightly stresses me out but it's really really good for anything to do with like serial killers yeah so yeah charles manson stranger in a strange land eh, one in <laughs> the same exactly but actually when his followers were being rounded up one of his followers uh, called Robert Heinlein a bunch of times to try to be like, you can like get us out of this, right? <laughs> because they had such a strong belief that he was like the founder of their crazy church. Ring, ring. Hi, Robert A. Heinlein. This is uh, Charles Manson. Um, I just murdered like some people and like some famous people. Please help me. <laughs> but yeah, and then also the book has a church in it that Mike founds. It's called the Church of All Worlds. And there's actually a real-life church called that that was founded by a dude named Timothy Zell after he read the book. He changed his name to Oberon Zell Ravenheart. See, I don't get that because that kind of name wouldn't be like in Stranger in a Strange Land, though. No, I don't know. Like Timothy Zell, yeah, I could see that in Stranger in a Strange Land. But Oberon? Yeah. It's not, there's no elves in Stranger Strange Land. That sounds like he thought he was an elf. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in the church, you know, it follows polygamy, it follows like philosophical tolerance, and it follows this like idea that like money isn't real, which is a big thing. I mean, money isn't real. Well, money is real. But I mean, humans only give money its worth. The oh, idea yeah. of like, the idea of reciprocal cha uh, exchange of goods and services, that's real. But using money as an intermediate is just putting a human concept on an abstract thing. That's true. But like I was talking about, you know, how in the book where Mike is like, oh, don't worry about it. Like all the money is in like the brassiers. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like obviously we live in a capitalist society and they're like <laughs> capitalism. Everyone should have full access to everything. I'm just so interested that a like this half fascist book was written by the same guy who wrote Strangers in a Strange Land. Yeah, Starship Troopers is... I mean, well, if, if you listen to this, you probably listened to that episode. And the term that Sam and I used for it was jingoistic because it's like super like 
military is the way. Mm-hmm. But this is then this book, which is like super like free love. Don't worry about money. Live your truth. And it's like, wow, okay. Okay, Robert A. Heinlein. Sure. Yeah. And Robert Heinlein never joined Zell's Church of All Worlds, but he did subscribe to the newsletter, which <laughs> for some reason was called Green Egg. I don't know why. All right. <laughs> Green eggs and ham? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so... Stranger in Strange Land is unique for Heinlein because Heinlein tended to write books in like three or four weeks. But this book he actually worked on for like 12 years and it wasn't actually even his idea. So in 1948, he married his third wife mm-hmm. who he was with for the rest of his life and she gave him the idea Virginia of... Virginia Gernsfeld? Yep. Virginia Gernsfeld, and she gave him the idea of this book, and then he only came up with a full version of it in 1960, and then it came out a little bit later. Well, wasn't her idea for this book was they wa- they like read the Jungle Book, and they were like, well, and she was like, well, what if it was a man raised by Martians instead of like animals? Exactly. But then she also thought that, so Virginia and Robert Heinlein were in an open relationship as he was with his wife previously, and she thought that that should be part of the book as well, because... <laughs> You know, Jungle Book, polygamy, what's the difference? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's all the same. But actually, so not Virginia, but Heinlein's wife before Virginia, Leslin, they were also in an open relationship. And with both of them, Robert Heinlein had a very strong habit of he'd be like, male friend, we're friends, sleep with my wife, it will bring us closer together. Wait, really? Yeah, he would basically push his wife to have affairs with his friends. God, that explains so much of this book. Yeah, which is actually partially one of the reasons why his second wife ended up divorcing him. But she, his second wife did, fun fact, for sure sleep with L. Ron Hubbard. What a poor, poor woman. <laughs> and some people believe they had a threesome. Okay, if there's anything I know about history or any person, the more homophobic you are, the more gay you really are. Yeah. They 100% touch tips. <laughs> They were stroking the um, scientific rockets together, if you know what I mean. Yeah, they were, you know, using that magical wand, as they said in the Dianetics episode. (laughs) You don't know what I'm talking about. You should listen to the Dianetics episode. There's some great magic sex shit. Hell yeah. Good for L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, stroking his wand. That's what they called it. Oh my god, what is it with 1950s repressed science fiction, sexually repressed science fiction writers? Yeah, truly. But yeah, so that's basically the history of this book. Any questions? (laughs) Oh no, I'm scared. (laughs) This book is so weird. It is a very weird book. Like, I've been listening to like the podcast and like so far the books are like, you understand generally where it's going from where it starts. This book, you cannot. There is no way to connect them. And I'll be honest, I've never read a book like this before. Well, yeah, so the first 300 pages of it are just like, Mike shows up on Earth, right? And people, the government's trying to hide him because by the weird standards of the legal system at the time, Mike is technically the owner of Mars. Yeah, some... Yeah, you're not uh, really gonna get into that. But then his nurse, Jill, breaks him out he hides at Jubal Harsher's. Well, she breaks him out accidentally. She was like, she was like, oh, I don't know if I should break him out. No, I'm just a woman. Oh. Yeah, she's very much like, I don't know if I should make decisions. But the reporter tells her very forcefully that she has to. Mm-hmm. And 
If there's anything we know about Jill as a character is that she does whatever the closest man in the vicinity to her tells her to do. But anyways, so she breaks him out of prison and takes him to Jubal Harshaw, who is this lawyer, doctor, extraordinaire. Amazing man who's never had a single problem in his life and everybody loves unless they're haters. He's also totally erected for Robert Heinlein. He but- is Robert A. Heinlein. There's no distinction between Jubal Harshad and Robert A. Heinlein except that Jubal Harshad has actually done something with his life. <laughs> I'm sorry, Robert A. Heinlein from the grave. <laughs> yeah, you wrote books that made me laugh, so... Mm-hmm. At least you did that. But yeah, and then the first part of the book is like him hiding at Jubal Harsha's house. Jubal Harsha is like figuring out how to make an agreement with the government that like Mike can live his life. He makes that agreement. That's like 30 pages in and you're like, wonderful. Jubal Harsha literally solves every single problem that comes up. It's yeah. like, wait, what about this? And Jubal Harsha is like, well, actually, if I do this really long-winded speech, we don't need to worry about it. And then everyone's just like, oh, you're so amazing, Jubal Harsha. Like, oh, I love you, Jubal Harsha. You, you're so smart. You're so genius. Why does anybody not Jubal Harsha? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> um, but anyways, so that's like the first two pages of the book. And it really is just like a condensed story. And then after that, Mike's like, well, I can live my own life. I'm going to join the circus. I'm going to meet a lady covered with tattoos, Patty. And actually, that's going to inspire me to start a sex cult. Yeah, the second half of this book is Mike starts a sex cult. (laughs) Which is really, I cannot emphasize enough how, like, I did not think that was where this book was going. You're reading the book, all right? And everything's going fine, all right? You're understanding that, like, Mike is having, like, conflict with the government. The government's trying to kill him. The government's, like, there's all these, like, all these factors at play. Jubal Harshaw is, like, fixing them. It's kind of boring. It's very boring. It's, like, very middle-of-the-road writing. And then suddenly, Mike just is like, you know what? I'm going to go visit the Fosterites, who are like this religious group. We'll talk about them a little bit later. And he hates the Fosterites. And then he immediately like goes home and has sex with one of the three women secretaries under Harshaw. I, I legitimately could not tell you which one. Probably well, Dorcas? I think it's Anne or Dorcas because Miriam marries someone else. Yeah, I think it's Dorcas. But it's unclear if Miriam and her husband are also in the free-loving sex cult or if they just visit the free-loving sex cult. I don't know. Miriam's husband is Muslim, but like his big breakthrough in the book is when he decides that being Muslim is not incompatible with being part of Mike's church. Yeah, I will say this about Robert A. Heinlein. How he writes the Muslim character for the 1950s is weirdly okay. He writes it with like the same, like, it's with disdain, but it's the same disdain that he shows like Christians as well. Yeah, he kind of just like, I think he just doesn't agree with religion in general, mm-hmm. which, so it makes him more accepting of Islam because he's kind of like Christianity and Islam are both wrong. Which is like a really, it's really interesting to hear him talk about like Islam because I mean, like with the time going on, because this is close to like the Suez Canal crisis, right? Yeah. So like the, the hatred around like Islamic groups and like the hatred of anything non-Christian, I think the fact that he already has this such disdain for Christianity or not, not a disdain, but a mis, a mistrust or misunderstand, not, not misunderstanding, but yeah, mistrust of Christianity. Like his, his one Islamic character, it comes off as very Islamic, but not to the point of El Mc terror face who's gonna blow up no well he's very islamic in that he doesn't drink and like 
doesn't eat pork. Yeah, it's like he follows the tenets of Islam, but otherwise he's like a perfectly fine, like nice dude. It's like a really weird, almost modern thing within the book. Yeah, well, it's also like Jubal Harsha quotes the Bible disparagingly at one point, but he also does that with the Quran. Yeah. Like, he's taking shots at everything. He's taking kind of like the South Park approach of, if we just make fun of everybody, then it's not a, it's not problematic. Which is, like, weirdly kind of based on Robert A. Heinlein's part. I I have to give it to him for that. Well, Robert Heinlein, very libertarian. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) And so I think he just has this idea that basically, like, religion is wrong, the government is wrong, except for military. Oh, my God. The libertarian themes in this book are insane. Like the government, the funniest thing I find about the government in this book is so first of all, it's like the UN, but on steroids in which there is like a government of the world and he hates it. But like, he thinks it's like a super corrupt organization and like Jubal Harshaw has to fight against it. But Jubal Harshaw fights against it using like laws and things within the own, their own like system. If they were really tyrannical, then they would just, they wouldn't care about those laws. Yeah. It's It's a very weird libertarian like stance of like fighting against the system using the system. He also presents the like president of the world as like fine. Okay. I will say actually, I disagree with that because the president of the world, based off of like how Robert A. Heinlein treats women. The president of the world is just a, like, a weak man who's beheld, beholden to the wills of his wife, who is then beholden to astronomy. And she doesn't, she, she's just, she's just a girly who just believes in astrology and doesn't actually, like, really care about, well, actually, she's pretty smart, actually. But she just really focuses on astrology and she based off of everything that she decides and does on astrology. Yeah, that is true. But when... Jubal Harsha offers the president a deal to basically let Mike off the hook. The president takes it. Yeah. And is like, yeah, sure, I'll look after Mike's interests. Yeah. Like, he sets up the president to be, like, this big bad guy, but then the president just doesn't. Well, so it's also funny as someone who is really pro-military that there's this whole thing where... There are just military men attacking the compound where Jubal Harsha lives. Mike literally just doesn't even just kill them, just erases them from space. And Jubal Harsha is like, all right, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Don't do that bad. again. Don't do that again, Mike. Oh, bad Mike. You just killed people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fun thing about this book. So if you speak or know the Martian language, you gain the ability to erase things from time and space. Including humans, items, you also have the ability to speak telepathically, you also have the ability to fly. You have the ability to do anything which is useful for the plot at the time. Basically, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because this is a much better thing, but it sort of makes me think of Arrival, which I watched recently. Because as you learn the Martian language, you get abilities, and as you learn the language in Arrival, which is a Ted Chiang story and also a really good movie... By Denny Villeneuve. Yeah, Denny Villeneuve, one of our beloved Quebecois film directors. Oh, really? She's from Quebec? He's from Quebec, yeah? He's from Quebec, yes. <laughs> We're very proud of him. At least I'm very proud of him. We're both American. <laughs> well, I live here now. That's true. <laughs> 
I I have a tendency to be very excited about anything Quebecois, which is I we are both from Maine, but <clears throat> whoa, go Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King's the only thing exciting from our hometown. But anyways, so Arrival. Oh yes, Arrival. <laughs> the aliens in that, their language is like circular through time. Mm-hmm. So as you learn it, you have the ability to look forward in your life and see events that are certainly going to happen. And it's kind of interesting because it sort of equates with how the language in this, as you learn it, you get the ability to see like you basically see like space in a different way. But I feel like in Arrival, it's you are seeing like space and time in a different way by speaking the language. So you have to like change your mind and change your way of thinking to be able to speak the language. But in this book, it's you know words and now you get magic. Yeah, it's very different because one of the things in Arrival is the main character in Arrival, she's a linguist and she learns the language. But she works with a guy who she eventually marries who is more on like the math side of the equation. And he never manages to learn the language in Arrival because he he can't think about it in the right way. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't have... He just... You have to have a very accepting view of the time continu- continuum to be able to read it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I... Really, Arrival, great movie. Is it a book? It's a short story. So, Tai Yang has never won uh, Hugo, to my knowledge, because he just does short stories. Mm. But at some point, I will absolutely be doing Stories of Your Life, because it is spectacular. Hmm. It's just like... It's Stories of Your Life is actually the story that Arrival is based on, but then there's a lot of other ones, and they all have really really interesting points of view so i would definitely recommend it and i'm really excited to talk about it because ted chiang is one of my favorite science fiction writers i don't actually think there's anyone ever who's beat the way he talks about things and i think comparing anything to ted chiang is a great way to show the flaws because alexei's right the language in ted chiang's stuff actually you really have to think properly to learn it and there's actually like difficulties with it and in this it's just like it's basically like, oh, learn another language, like the way you might learn French or Chinese. Oh, now you I know you have- French. Now I know how to be a complete snob. I'm kidding. Please. <laughs> Please, no. French people, don't hurt me. <laughs> Not exactly, but it's like, it's like if I was like, oh, I learned Chinese, now I can walk through walls. It'd be like, excuse me? What? You know, my girlfriend knows Chinese. Keeps coming through the walls to beat my ass. <laughs> I really hope Sienna can't walk through walls. That would be a little alarming. I should ask her whether she can walk through walls or not. <laughs> yep. We'll let you know on the next episode. Mm-hmm. We should really like focus probably on like the first part of the story and then move yeah. on to the second. Because they really are like different books. They really are. So what do you want to talk about the first part of this? Boring. <laughs> Nothing it, happens. The, there are Jubal Harshaw's compound for like, what, 100 pages? Yeah. So the main thing that happens is, so Jill has this friend ben caxton and ben caxton wants her to marry him but she's not sure she's not sure she wants to like fully give herself to any one man Mm -hmm. because of course at the end she'll join an open sex call but he wants to free the man from mars from custody and he gives her a little bit of a plan and then he gets kidnapped by the evil government 
so I hate to say it, but I, I kind of like Ben Caxton. Like, yeah. I, I didn't like how the first part of the story is basically just, it's either Ben Caxton explaining things to Jill, or it's Jubal Harshaw explaining things to his secretaries. But Ben Caxton, like, the way he talks, like, the way that he, like, he works, and he's, like, really, like, focused on what he wants to do, it's really interesting in the first part. When he comes back in the second part, he doesn't do anything. Well, in the first part, he really just is the caricature of a reporter. So he doesn't have like anything interesting about him regardless of the fact that he's a reporter. But there's like there's an interesting enough plot in that he has things he wants. He talks about them in interesting ways. When I was reading it, even though I didn't quite realize it, in my brain he had a really intense Boston accent. Oh, actually, so I was uh, listening to the audiobook for the first half. And the character who did Ben Caxton did like the heavy like New York New York accent. He's like, "Hey, see here, kitty, we gotta go free the man from Mars." Perfect, fit him perfectly. Yeah, he's he's just like that. It's just it's just what he is. And in the second part of the book, he's just not sure about the sex cult, and then embraces the sex cult, and that's basically all that matters about yeah, him. And it's so sad because he like he gets he gets taken away, tortured, and then he's brought back, and he doesn't do anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I kind of thought that he... So, they make this deal with the government, eventually. And I thought that when they rescued Ben Caxton from being tortured by the government, that when Jubal Harshaw said he wanted to make this deal with the government, Ben Caxton was going to, like, fight against it. Mm -hmm. And maybe be, like, a violent actor against the government. But then he just goes with it. Yeah, nobody... <laughs> what? It... Jubal Harshaw is the most intelligent person ever. Of course everybody would follow his incredible, most brilliant ideas that he has ever had in his life. I mean, no one ever questions Jubal. Also, he doesn't immediately join the sex call in the second part of the book, but they love him so much they have like a giant head of him that they like keep for their religious ceremonies. We'll talk about Jubal Harshaw and the sex cult later. <laughs> it's special. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, is I think the reason why we keep referring to the second part of the book is the first part of the book, it's it's just not that interesting. And I think part of it also is, is that there's so much where Jubal Harshal is just like explaining legalese. Legalese or just like mild racism, or in some cases, major racism. Like the yeah. whole cannibal thing. Yeah. Like, you know, we all have a bit of, we all, like, we all think cannibalism is wrong, but, you know, you're, you're one-fourth Native American, so you have cannibalism in you, and it's like, what? Why the you fuck are you that? talking about? I guess the first part of the book is mostly just Jubal Harshar walking around saying, like, strange, inane things, and Anne Miriam Dorcas being like, oh, Jubal, you're so smart. Because part of the thing is that all of his female secretaries kind of want to sleep with him, but he is too noble to sleep with them because he's old. And, you know. So, I oh. think we should talk about it. Jubal Harshaw's Robert A. Heinlein. Yep. He is so clearly an author insert character. I know I don't have a problem. I don't have any problem with author insert characters. By God, did you need to make your author insert character basically be the best man in the world? Like, I know Robert A. Heinlein had a very large opinion of himself, but this is bordering on levels of narcissism I've never seen before. Well, yeah, because it's like Jubal Harsha um, is like the most renowned lawyer in the world. He's also considered a very good doctor. He writes 
like the most popular fiction. One of the other things that they do in this book that's very strange is, so he has these three secretaries, and at any point he'll just call front, and whichever one of the secretaries is nearest will come up, and then he'll just like dictate part of a book to them. Because apparently, in addition to that, he is like the best-selling author in the world. Okay, I will say one thing that I really liked in this book is when they go to like the mega church, the Fosterites, and Jubal Harsha and the, like, Jubal Harsha is with them because Jubal Harsha is everywhere. And one of the like the people, like the sex woman, I forgot her name. Oh yeah, yeah. She comes up and he's like, "Oh, you're Jubal Harsha? Like I've read your book." And he's like, "Oh, how'd you like it?" It's like, "Oh, it's so great. It helps me go to sleep so easily." And I'm like. Oh, yeah, at least one burn on Robert A. Heinlein. <laughs> and that's a pretty good burn. Yeah, that character, I, I didn't even think to tell Alexei that he should put her in the intro. But the main thing about her is that she was a Fosterite. And then she joins Mike's church. And she's one of his head priestesses. But she's very close to Jill. So I think her name is Dawn. And basically her personality point is when people want to have sex with Jill... But Mike feels like they're too jealous to have sex with Jill. He has them have sex with Dawn instead. That's literally the only thing she does. She's just the fill-in for Jill at sex. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, Robert A. Heinlein. What a man. What a, what a special brain was there. I mean, he really just wanted to be in a larger open relationship. Yeah, he wanted to join a sex cult. Well, I think he just was Polly and didn't know how to deal with that in a healthy manner mm-hmm. because of the time period and so just dreamed about being in a sex cult. <laughs> Though, honestly, even if you're Polly, it is a little bit weird to pressure all of your friends to have sex with your partner. That's like a level. Like, there's being Polly. And then there's pressuring your friends and your partner to have sex with each other. Well, it's like, I have some good friends who are poly. And, you know, I'm very respectful of that decision. But I would be a little bit upset if they were like, please have sex with my partner. Because I'd be like, I don't want to. What? And especially, like, if the partner's also not, like, that into it. It's just kind of a... It's just a weird power dynamic that I don't understand. Well, one of the interesting things that I read when I was researching for this episode, L. Ron Hubbard said later in life that Robert Heinlein practically forced him to have sex with his wife, which indicates that it seems like L. Ron Hubbard maybe wasn't that interested, and Robert Heinlein was like, no. Okay, well, how much can you believe L. Ron Hubbard? But at the same time, I think there's a kernel of truth in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially, like, based on this book, when we say free love, we're not meaning, like, harem or, like, Mike starts a harem or Jubal Harshaw starts a harem. No, it's free love. Heterosexual Heterosexual free love, but it's free love. Yeah, but I think the thing is, is I guess it's, like, even if one of my friends was dating someone that I found mildly attractive, I would not really want to have sex with someone that one of my good friends was actively having sex with. I don't know. Just a little weird. Yeah, I would I would never be like, hey, friend, have sex with my partner. Yeah, it's hard because I'm in a relationship right now and I'm not Polly, so. <laughs> you mean like, you don't want me to have sex with Sienna? Please, for the love of God, do not have sex with Sienna. Sienna, if you're, if you're listening to this episode, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, I Actually, would Actually, more never. importantly, if my parents are listening to this episode, <laughs> please, you know what? Thank you, mom and dad, for supporting me, but just skip this one. You don't need it. <laughs> 
a shout out to uh, Karen Sichters. Karen Sichters, the real G. Actually, honest to God, if my mom was listening to this episode, she'd be totally fine with it. Yeah, me. she'd be approving. We love you, Karen. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and for all the readers out there, listeners who are like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is we're trying to give you an experience similar to reading the book. And this is about, you know, as close as we could get it. It's, I, I have no words, <laughs> legitimately. Yeah, I mean, this book changes so quickly. And one of the things that I did find out that was interesting when I was researching it, which I didn't make Alexa and I read these versions of it because I don't actually hate Alexa or myself, but there's actually a version of the book that's about 60,000 words longer because when the first version of this book was brought to the publisher, Heinlein's publisher tried to convince him to, one, take out the free love and sex stuff, which Heinlein was like, absolutely not. Good for him. <laughs> and then the publisher was like, okay, fine. But at the very least, you got to cut it to make it shorter. So he cut it by 60,000 words. And there is an unabridged version that his wife published in 1991. But I felt like I would just read the normal one. Mm -hmm. But it's also like... Most sci-fi books in the 50s and 60s are about 200 pages, and this book is already, like, 600 pages. I, like, so I was uh, listening to the audiobook, and so it's six hours long, all right? And I'm listening to it, and I was watching it on YouTube, and I was doing my work and doing stuff while I was watching it. And then it felt like the plot was wrapping up, but... I didn't, like, I knew already about, like, the free love stuff and that kind of stuff, but it hadn't appeared yet. No. There was another audiobook section to it. This is only part one of two, which was another nine hours. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. This book, I really, I did enjoy it versus the other books I've read for this so far. But I was very surprised when I started reading it because I assumed it was going to be so much shorter. Then I was like, wow, this is actually going to take me, like, a day. Mm-hmm. It's... It's significant. But the next one I'm reading is not significant, so... Ah. Well, Alexei, actually, after doing this one, when I asked him which one he wanted to do next, he asked about the page counts because he didn't realize when he agreed to this one that it was going to be 600 pages. I'll be honest. I agreed to Stranger in a Strange Land because I saw the overly, sarca the overly sarcastic video about it, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, yeah, sex cult? That sounds interesting. I'll talk about it. But then it's 450 pages long, and it's dense. And it's boring until they get to the sex cult. <laughs> yeah, I, w I have to admit, I knew nothing about this book going in. So I was very surprised. <laughs> but, like, so th the way that it shifts is Mike goes to the, like, the mega church for mm -hmm. the world, the Fosterites. Uh, he's going around and he's trying to find like the old ones. And there's a really interesting idea within Stranger in the Strange Land about what happens when you die. Because the Martians know what happens when you die. You become an old one who, like, guides the rest of the Martians. But humans don't really. And so um, Mike is really interested in religion because they seem to suggest what happens to the old one. So he goes to the Fosterite. He tries to figure it out. And he finds that the Fosterites have, like, mummified their, like, deity. And he's horrified because cannibalism is a very common, like, eating your dead is, like, a common, common thing on Mars. And so... He's like, he's horrified, he's scared, and he doesn't understand what's happening. And then he has sex. <laughs> and he describes it in detail. And it's like, oh. And then he has sex, and he's like, all right, I'm doing this. And it's like, 
what? I was reading that section on the Metro and I literally like looked around, like covered the book and I'm like, what the hell is happening? I've accidentally looked at like, you know, like Reddit, like not safe for work pictures. I've looked at that on the, um, I've looked at like accidental porn on the Metro and been less nervous than reading this book. Well, it's really, it's very vivid sex scenes. It's Vivid. It gives you all the details where most books of this time period are kind of like they kiss a little bit of thing about foreplay fade to black, right? No, no, no. Every Everything will be mentioned. Mike shoving his throbbing cock. You know. <laughs> I don't know if it ever gets like that much. No, but it, I mean, it does kind of talk about him putting his heart on places at different points. And it's like, ah, this is more than I bargained for. I was not expecting to read straight up porn. <laughs> yeah. Especially from the 1960s. Yeah, it was It was a bold choice on Robert Highland's part. But yeah, the foster rates are so the whole thing is is that when people die on Mars, their bodies are eaten by their friends like enjoy it, but their spirits live on as an old one. And he thinks that there must be spirit human old ones. So he keeps going to all these religious places because he's trying to find them. And the Fosterites is this church that he goes to that the Fosterites' whole thing is is that God loves us, so he wants us to be happy. I do, okay, I will say, I do like the idea of the Fosterite church. Of yeah. being like, God loves us, so he wants us to be happy, and he gave us these things to be happy with. Which is a much more like, I don't know, it, it, it's a much more like, positive view of humanity's plight than christianity actually is because christianity yeah. is god like god loves us but is fundamentally opposed to things that make us happy like the things that like really truly make us happy are all satan while the fosterites believe that the things that truly make us happy are all from god and I like that idea. I think it's a really interesting religious concept. Yeah, I really was very fascinated by the Fosterites because the Fosterites, in all their churches, they have like gambling areas where all the money goes to like the church programs and they have like drinking areas and they're super into like sex because, you know, God gave you the ability to basically feel joy from sex because he wants you to be happy. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I mean, I probably wouldn't join any religion, but as far as religions go, I can kind of get behind that. I mean, it's, it's, um, God, what is the word? Hedonism. It, like, it's based, like, it really feels like the original hedonistic cult of ancient Greece. But Christian. But Christian. And it's like, you know, we could do with a church like that. And, but it's really weird because this idea of, like, this free-loving church that loves, like, people and stuff is still fundamentally opposed to what Robert A. Heinlein creates as his, like, perfect church of Mike's church. Like, they're different churches, and, like, the Fosterites are the opposing force, despite being fundamentally similar to what Robert well, A. Heinlein is arguing for. I think the real thing is, is that Robert A. Heinlein wants to be Polly, mm. and he can't be because it's the 60s, but he wishes he could be, and so his ideal church is a Polly church. Mm. And the Fosterites are open in all ways except for being poly. That's true, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, the Fosterites, overall, they seem to be like what, it seems to be like what Robert Heinlein is like looking for in life, except for like the polyness. Like looking for in like a church, I guess. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you can read things and you get like an inkling of people's 
sexual desires. But this, I really read this and I was like, this author is Polly. A hundred percent. You can't. There's some things which you're like, it's being written with like poly overtones or homosexual overtones. No, this is this is straight up poly fan fiction of fucking the man from Mars. Yeah, it's it's really poly. Now the Fosterites are really interesting though. Like, they're honestly about as good as a church gets. Yeah. Like I thought like of some of the there was a few ideas in Stranger in a Strange Land, which I really liked, and one of them was the Fosterite Church. Yeah. Now, one thing I didn't like, uh, just to do a hard change to another topic, was Jill. She's, so, okay, I'll be honest. I've never read a, another Robert A. Heinlein book in my life, but I've heard about them. And it seems that Jill is a bit better than any of the other female characters. I have read other Robert A. Heinlein books, and the thing is, is we've talked about Carmen in Starship Troopers, which she really doesn't do anything. There's like... I remember, I think Sam mentioned it. There's the line where the main character in Starship Troopers is like, you know, she's so pretty. I never imagined she could be anything but ornamental. It's like, no, don't do that. But then also there's the women in Double Star. Oh my God. I don't even remember the secretary's name in Double Star. That's how important she is. But she just kind of like follows around the main hero. And Jill has like a few independent thoughts at the beginning but then they all fade well it's like it's like robert a heinlein is trying to like create a female character with personality but then he's so stuck in his head that women can't do anything and they can't have like independent thoughts of their own that she's not able to do anything like she has a job she works very hard and she doesn't oh like initially she doesn't just listen to whatever guys say to her. Like guys will say like Jubal Harshaw or Ben Caxton will say, do this and she will question them, but she will never ever like actually go through with the process of not obeying them. And she never questions Mike. She never questions Mike. Well, who questions Mike actually? In all fairness, like who in the entire book questions Mike? Jubal Harshaw does a few times. Jubal Harshaw is the awesome, all-knowing best character in the entire book who nobody could ever hold a candle to. Eventually, even Jubal Harshaw comes around to all of Mike's teachings. Mm-hmm. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we were talking about how there's Anne, Miriam, and Dorcas, and we had to think about their names. And the reason why is because they have even less character than Jill. It feels like there's like a scene where all three of them are just waiting in line to kiss Mike, waiting to fuck Mike, and one of them gets pregnant, and Jubal's like, I'm sure it's by Mike, but I can't ask that we ruin. It's like, okay, fair enough. But it's just like, that's so weird. Just, God, Anne, Miriam, and Dorcas, they're literally just, he, he, it's like Robert A. Heinlein, it's like the M. Night Shyamalan thing, in which Robert A. Heinlein gives them one small, slight personality trait and expects that to define them. Like, have you ever seen the really, really, really bad movie by M. Night Shyamalan, which is about, like, the the plants are trying to kill everybody? No, but- The Happening? One of the characters, so how- the Happening, one of the worst movies ever. All right, and I don't like... I'm not a big, like, bad movies guy. Like, mm-hmm. it needs to be really bad before I'm interested, but this movie is really bad. <laughs> How he does characterization is he gives a character, like, one personality trait. And, like, the most famous is, like, randomly in The Happening, without any... Without anybody asking him, without any, like, previous conversation or anything, one character just suddenly goes, I really like hot dogs. <laughs> They're really nice. I like hot dogs with mustard and pickles and stuff. They're so good. And then it's like, that's his characterization is he likes hot dogs. 
And it feels like that's kind of what Robert Heinlein is doing to like most of the characters in this book is Anne, she's a star witness. Dorcas. Yeah, I don't even know what Miriam and Dorcas are. Miriam's the one that's married to... Miriam marries a Muslim man and Dorcas is slightly older than the other two. Yeah, and it's like, that's going to be their defining trait to set them apart from the other three. Yeah, well, I mean, for all its flaws with it, though, like Starship Troopers, like every single character is just like a vague caricature of awesome military man. So it's slightly better than that. But it's still like no female character can or will do anything independently. They may think about doing otherwise, which I guess is a step up for Robert Heinlein, but they would, in the end, follow every man and every female character you ever meet. Whether or not she says it, her real one dream in life is to have sex with Mike. I think that brings us perfectly to... (laughs) Now, it's not just the female characters who every single goal they have in life is just to end up having sex with Mike. It kind of feels like every single character's character arc is just eventually getting to the point of their peak character moment is when they have an orgy with Mike. Yeah, well basically the whole thing is is that Mike eventually determines that what sets Martians and humans apart is sex. (laughs) Is the joy that humans can have during sex. And then he creates this church. And when you get to the highest level of his church, you like move in with the church and you just become fully poly. And it's like everyone makes breakfast for everyone. Everyone has sex with everyone, but no homosexual sex. Homosexual. No, no homosexual sex. Yeah, like there's this weird scene <laughs> where like Jill is like looking at. She's seeing the beauty of another woman, but she's only seeing it through men's eyes. So she's not really like finding the other woman attractive. No, she's seeing how men find this other woman attractive. It is kind of like. Well, that's a little weird. That's a little weird that. It feels like if you have, like, a fully poly church, it should be acceptable if there's any homosexual sex. Right? But they're like, no, no. They they disavow that. But basically, all of the other characters are like, yes, we're we're down for poly heterosexual sex. And, like, Ben's whole character arc is that when he first visits the church, he isn't down for it because he sees Jill basically having sex with Mike. And he's not happy about that. But then he repents and goes back and has sex with everyone. And that's when you see that Don and Jill are interchangeable because Jill kind of thinks about having sex with my, sorry, thinks about having sex with Ben, but she's like, ah, he'd be jealous. So she sends Don to have sex with him instead. And I feel like this brings up probably the most, the, the most interesting decision of any author I've ever seen in any case. It's Jubal Harshaw. He gets raped in this book. But then he thanks everyone for it. But he thanks everyone. So Robert A. Heinlein got his self-insert character to be raped. (laughs) Yeah, well, basically the whole thing is, is that, but maybe he doesn't consider rape. I don't know. Jubal Harsha never wants to have sex with any of his female secretaries or any of the women around him because he thinks he's too old for such things. And he considers joining the church, but he feels like he's too old because it's, they never really get into it in this book. Basically... If you're rich enough, there's, like, things you can take to main, become younger than you are. So Jubal Harshar is really old. Mm-hmm. We don't really know how old he is. But Dawn, who is the woman who in the Fosterite church is like, oh, yeah, I've read your books. They let lull me to sleep. When Jubal Harshaw comes to see the people at the church because they've been driven out of their building because other people are against them because they're free love, he 
is like I'm part of this but also I don't have sex with you but then Don like comes into his bed while he's sleeping and is like you gotta have sex with me and he's like no I'm too old and then she starts crying and so then he gives in because she's crying and it's like this isn't Robert Highline you're raping your your self insert character yeah and it's very weird because it feels like robert a heinlein didn't write or see it as rape and i can't help wondering if he just didn't believe that like women could rape people i think yeah like i don't think he believed that like men could be raped by women but it absolutely feels like a rape scene because jubal tells her to go away several times yeah and she just leans in and then they have sex and then afterwards he finds out that while they were having sex she was like opening her mind so like every other person in the compound was like watching and enjoying the sex which is even worse yeah that's you even- understand how that's worse robert a heinlein right but then jubal is like no i feel younger and better and this is really what i needed was some beautiful young woman to rape me and it's like no honestly it kind of feels like this scene in like any other like horrible science fiction book would have the gender swapped yeah in which it would be like oh this is what i actually needed but the fact that it's like it's just such a a weird weird choice on robert a heinlein's part well i think the thing is is that i think robert a heinlein had a fantasy of like women loving him so much that they like came to him in bed Mm -hmm. and he didn't consider how weird that sounded in this book he also had a fantasy of fucking twins yes because he emphasizes so much how jill and dawn are the same that people aren't sure like which one they're fucking in several scenes is like wow okay well at one point mike is basically like yeah i made them both high priestesses because they look so similar they can be interchangeable in all the ceremonies and it's like mm, okay mike all the ceremonies mike also to be clear one of the ceremonies of reaching the highest rank of this church just it's an orgy of course it's an orgy but so basically like the last dramatic peak of this book is jubal harsha joining the cult Mm -hmm. and then there's the ending yeah just so do you want me to explain the ending yeah you explain and then i'll chime in so the martians are like yo mike we were just giving you powers so that we could like see what humans do with it and so they take away mike's powers and then he like immediately dies and he like ascends to heaven and it turns out he's actually the archangel michael which has been eluded up to this point and it's like what yeah so before this there was like one very weird scene where and this i thought was funny because it kind of alludes that maybe like the phosphorites are the right church unclear where some of the dead phosphorite bishops are just like hanging out in the afterlife and like watching over things and basically like working on the galaxy and then at the end mike joins them but like as they're overarching superior because he's the archangel michael so there's like a whole crowd of people that go out that are angry about his church and he like confronts them and lets them kill him classic you know what that right there is that's a classic joseph smith move yeah truly and then jubal harsha tries to kill himself after that but then mike appears to him in a vision and convinces him not to classic jubal harsha (laughs) yeah but honestly you know what the funny thing is that's not even the weirdest part of the ending. 
Yeah, I just thought the scenes in Heaven are so strange because they just come out of nowhere. And it's just like, it has nothing to do with anything else in the book. And I think this book would have been better if it hadn't given any answers about what the afterlife is. Yeah. Like, Alexei didn't read this. But one of the things that I love so much about A Case of Conscience, which if you haven't watched that episode yet, you should, is that that episode leaves... Should we just watch every episode? Is there any episodes which you would, like, not recommend? Mm, Is there any episodes that I wouldn't recommend? I don't think the pilot is necessarily important for the other ones. But I think all the other ones are worthwhile, except for maybe, like, the big time. Sarah and I kind of just talk for so long about how much we hate the book. So maybe I'd recommend that less than the other episodes. But, <laughs> but yes, no, continue. But A Case of Conscience, I thought was a really good episode because it's a book that I actually genuinely thought was really good and pretty interesting. But it's a Catholic priest who tries to exercise a planet and then the planet gets exploded. But there's like a very reasonable scientific explanation for why that might have happened. But it also happens right at the time that he ends the exorcism. So it leaves it very open. Was it his religion? Was it the science? Maybe it was both. You don't know. It doesn't answer it. It's like, I kind of would have preferred that here. I don't really want to know that there was a heaven and that humans were there. And then also, like, the whole thing with, like, the Martians, like, coming back, coming to Earth to, like, destroy it. Because um, the asteroid belt was destroyed by the Martians. Like, it used to be the fifth planet. Yeah. I don't actually know how many planets. I'm a biologist. I apologize. I'm a historian. Okay. I don't know any science. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, fifth planet. <laughs> there used to be a fifth planet. <clears throat> it was destroyed, made into the asteroid belt by the Martians. And so the Martians like decide to basically do the same thing to Earth. But then Earth has become such like sex gods through Mike's sex cult that they just fight off the Martians. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. And it's like, okay. Um... It's it's very unclear exactly what's going on. This book, I I just I don't know. The ending is very strange. You should read it for yourself and tell us what you think. I feel like Robert A. Heinlein was trying to tell us something by Stranger in a Strange Land. Because like listening to it, like Stranger, like seeing the words Stranger in a Strange Land, it's you're thinking like, oh, it's. Mike coming to a strange land which he doesn't know about and it's like a fish out of water story but it's not a fish out of water story no we're the strangers in a strange (laughs) land what the fuck is happening here (laughs) I think what he's really telling us is that he thinks everyone would be happier if they were Polly which he thinks because he is Polly (laughs) Polly Dear Robert A. Heinlein if there is an afterlife and if for some godforsaken reason you got the better one I hope you're doing as well as you possibly can. And I hope you've realized you're poly and we're having sex and promotional relationships with many people because that is clearly what you wanted. It's clearly what he needed, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I think he like liked his wives, but I think he wanted more. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that's fine. It's perfectly acceptable being poly. It's just... A funny book to read <sighs> by a closeted poly person from the 60s. And it's so weird because you don't, you read like a lot of like closeted like homosexual books like any of Robert A. Heinlein's other work or L. Ron, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's work. By the way, if they're super homophobic, they're probably gay. But you don't read a lot of like 
like wannabe poly books, you know? And it's always weird when you like see it. I think just especially because there was such a hard turn. So we really, really were not looking for it. I just, it literally, I, I know we've said it like a million times, but I cannot emphasize just how much, like how far out of left field this turn comes from. Yeah, it's it's a special book. So, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, you know, I don't think so. What about you? Not really. So, the last question is, would you recommend this book, Alexei? You know, it if you're really into science fiction and you're okay, here's what I'll say. If you can read quickly, I'd recommend this book because it, it's very boring for a while, but it's so weird and twisty and turny and just strange that the quicker you read it the better it is i'm a slow reader so it was a bit hard on me because <laughs> there you go through all these slow boring sections to get to okay now we start in a sex call whereas i as a fast reader would absolutely recommend it because i'm not sure i would say it's one of the best books i've ever read but it certainly was one of the most entertaining it's just such, it's a lovely twist. It's so weird. There are so many weird passages of this book at the end that you're just like, oh dear Lord, who's having sex with who next? Because also every single person in Jubal's like group, before he leaves to join the sex cult, they all leave one by one to join the sex cult. And there's all like the scenes about them having sex and like, getting up really excited, having breakfast the next morning. And it's just like, he, I think, I think the thing was, was I think that Robert Hyland truly believed, which I can kind of see how this might happen in the 60s. He truly believed that everyone was poly mm -hmm. and just had like the same inclinations as him and just wasn't brave enough to talk about it. And it's like, I can see that, but not everyone is poly. Yeah. Well, it's the classic like closeted approach of everybody must feel this way. Well, like, it's a very classic narcissistic closeted approach. Everyone must feel this way, but I'm the only one brave enough to say it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, uh, I don't know about that, but it's, it's... I don't know about that, but... But it's good to know. And I mean, I don't know, maybe a lot of people in the 60s did feel this way since it didn't win a Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like, was weirdly popular. Oh, actually, there's one thing I forgot to talk about. And it's probably one of the most important things about this book, and I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah. The word, so there's a word used in this book, and it's called grok. Oh, yeah, we haven't. And grok is used as like, like a, it's basically to a greater understanding of things, of like, oh, I grok that. Like, I understand that to a greater understanding. I love the word grok. I don't know why, but it's like, yeah, I grok it. Yeah, I can't believe that we forgot to mention that. But groking is really interesting because it like sort of, means I understand something, but in like a more, in a very profound way. Like if you told someone, you know, I feel really sad because of some very like deep reason, like, you know, I'm really sad because my dog died and it was the only dog I had and I felt like we really had a close connection then you'd be like I grok that man mm -hmm. I get you but I feel like grokking can only come from a state of like a complete understanding so it'd be mm -hmm. like if you're if you've also gone through a similar 
situation or if you have like the mental capacity and I like to understand that. Or if you are Water Water Brothers and Yeah, we never brought up Water Brothers. Uh, it's not really that important. It's not really that important. But basically, basically just Water Brothers turns into sex cult. Yeah, but basically on Turns into a different kind of Water Brother <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> on Mars, water is very sacred. It kind of makes me think about I've been reading Dune recently. That's going to be a fun episode. And you know, in Dune, it's like when you respect someone, you spit in front of them because you're giving them your moisture because moisture is so rare. And in this, it's like, that's why water is so important on Mars because water is so rare. Mm -hmm. So they, if you share water, it's like a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Like at one point, Jill invites Mike to get into like the tub and he thinks that's the biggest honor. Yeah, he's like, oh my God, am I a king? What? Yeah, because water is rare on Mars, which that is kind of a scientific thing, but it's also a weird religious thing. Water is rare on Mars and Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Earth has some of the most, like, it's like the most water-rich place in the solar system. Yep. Titan has a lot of water, but not as much as Earth. Mm-hmm. Titan is the second most. But anyways, so if you're water brothers, then you're really close and you would die for each other. And if you're water brothers, then you could say I grok that because... Even if you don't fully understand, it's like, I understand that I would do anything for you. Yeah. Like, there's there's a few things I really like about this book. And there's a lot which I don't like. But one of the things I really like is Grok. Yeah. It, it's, it comes off the tongue very well. It's fun to say. Like, right now, say Grok. It'll make you feel much better. I promise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just add it to your vocabulary. It's also just like... I love books that have their own vocabulary because it makes you more fade into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love fantasy, so... (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of the human characters spend a long time in this book trying to understand exactly how to say Grok. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting to watch. I think the only thing about the early part of the book that at all really interested me was watching the human characters try to figure out what the hell Mike was doing. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Oh, well, one of the things that Mike can do that only Jubal is able to do smart enough to figure out is that martians have the ability to when they panic basically like go to like a stasis state Mm -hmm. and it's like they're breathing but only barely and all the other humans think that like mike is like killing himself or dying but jubal's the only one who realizes of course (laughs) also jubal is the first person to realize that the reason why mike doesn't care about death is because he thinks when he's killing humans that their spirits are just becoming old ones. Mm-hmm. And so Jubal's the first person to be like, hey, buddy, you're actually just... A- what a classic medieval Buddhist standpoint. <laughs> yeah, it is it is unique. I mean, there are a lot of flaws with this book. There are a lot of characters that aren't really characters. There's a lot of strange turns. There are some boring parts. But there's some really interesting ideas and some really interesting people. And I don't know. I really would recommend it the more I think about it. Yeah, I'd recommend it. Like... I think of like all the Robert A. Heinlein books. It would yeah. be the best. I mean, it I definitely I haven't Of the ones read, that won the Hugo. Yeah, I haven't read enough of them to say for sure of all of them. I haven't read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress yet. But of Double Star, which I did like Double Star. I did like the main character in Double Star. But of Double Star or Starship Troopers, I absolutely would recommend Stranger Strangeland over them. Because there's just so much more going on. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to say? I think that's it. 
Okay, well, anyways, bye, listeners. Hey, thanks for listening. Keep it zesty. Keep it cool. (laughs) Bye. Bye. 